Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to The Parenthood. It feels like we've all become amateur scientists over the pandemic with fierce views on what science is telling us. But studies aren't a new thing. Scientifically controlled studies for years have told us much about human behaviour, giving us an insight into human and especially childhood behaviour that might not come, have come to us naturally. With me today are two men who are equally fascinated. Edward Watson is a retired army major, management consultant and entrepreneur. And Bradley Bush is a psychologist. Together they've collaborated on a book drawing together 77 studies that they feel every parent should know. Studies that unlock the mysteries of our children's brains, behaviour and potential. And help us navigate that often seemingly impossible task of being the best parents we possibly can be. Edward Bradley, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. So this is um, the, the, this this book is dedicated to understanding studies um, involving children. Why are these studies relevant for parents? Well, I think one of the things that, uh, as a as a parent myself, that I discovered uh, was uh, when the child arrived, it arrived without an instruction manual, which was a bit alarming for me in particular. And um, I think one of the, the, the relevance of this stuff is there's a, there's a ton of research out there that is good uh, for learning and good for students, uh, good for children to, to, um, to, to be exposed to. And it's very, very difficult to get hold of. And it's very difficult to know which ones are the right ones or even have the time to read the research uh, and the research is often very technological, so it's very difficult to read. So we decided that we'd try and address that particular issue by uh, perhaps presenting research in a way that could be, well, that was available, but also in a way that might be an interesting read. Uh, so we've designed the book based around a, a mixture of pictures uh, and uh, results and perhaps things that you might think about using those results and that research for and um, hopefully that is something I mean I always say is a bit of a, a sort of book that you might have beside the loo that you read dip in and out of and the stuff that you're interested in perhaps you read a bit more about but uh, you, you, you sort of pick what you like and, 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 and see where you go with it. Yeah and I guess um, for me as, um, as both a parent and a psychologist uh, the things I found quite interesting is one that like I'm really tired all the time as a parent. Like, just every day I'm tired and I'm just guessing about what I think I should or shouldn't be doing with the best intentions in the world. Um, 
but I don't know, and like no one knows, everyone's just going along guessing, and I just wanted to have some evidence or some guidelines around what a good guess might be, and so that was part of it, and then the other part, I think, for me, why I wanted to write the book was, for better or worse, most people are heavily influenced with their parenting based on how their parents raise them. Either we tend to do the same, or we rebel and do the opposite. Uh, and yet, a lot of the challenges that I'm facing now with my toddler, my parents didn't have to deal with these issues. So my parents never had to wrestle with, is it a mistake for him to be learning maths on his iPad instead of pen and paper? Um, and how much social media time for like when, when he becomes a teenager, how much social media time is too much? And so I feel like this generation of parents we are really stumbling blind in the dark here and we just need some sort of guideline and illumination and i believe i believe research can can help inform that yeah i mean i i i've got to say i love the book i loved how kind of bite-sized the studies are and it, you're right edward it's kind of the perfect loo book because you can kind of dip in and dip out but there was one study i was reading about how um they were testing children's planning skills and they basically realized that if you give children you know three months to do something none of them will finish it on time because they just planning doesn't come naturally to them and what was interesting is that of course, that makes absolute sense. But as a parent, very often I'll just presume that my children can do something because I can. And planning is one of those typical things. I go, Ludo, you've got to do your homework by the end of the week and he's never done it. He's always forgotten something. But a bit like we don't presume our children can walk, we should also presume our children can't plan. And having that kind of illumination of the study saying, actually, the data shows that children are poor planners just reminds you as a parent to be like, ah, yes, we do actually need to teach them to do this. Well, I think that's one of the things that I have always said about common sense is, of course, it's most of the stuff that's in this book is common sense, but it's only common sense once somebody has told you it's common sense uh, and then it becomes common sense. Yeah, well, and also very often with parenting things, you're like, of course, but you didn't get to that on your own. You just needed someone to sort of you know, look at the sort of behaviour of a larger cohort. Also, as parents, I think, we think our children are very unique. And by and large, yes, they are on a sort of micro level, but their behaviour is, is, is all quite similar, isn't it, as, uh, as parents? So much. And this is one of the things I find really interesting, because we always get asked about these sort of differences, either based on personality or gender t- uh, t- be an interesting one and the general consensus we are different and we have different personalities and lived experiences but also we're way more similar than we are different and therefore there are some general principles uh, that we can apply and I think when it comes to parenting so you're talking about your child's ability to plan it's sometimes it's so easy to see it in other people like it's always easier to offer advice elsewhere but because we're living it day to day Sometimes until we read some of this sort of stuff, it kind of takes us out of that bubble and allows us to think, why am I doing my parenting in this sort of way? Um, And even if you don't agree with all the studies, at least it's given you time to reflect on why we do what we do. And I think that's really important for parents. And I think that's a crucial thing, this idea that you take the book and you take what is sort of normal for the majority of people, but caveat with that it might not apply to your child. And I think as parents being able to take the nuance and individuality of that child that we know exceptionally well and use you know the studies as as a guide but not necessarily as a you must go in this direction because obviously the studies you know studies have limitations in terms of telling us how to parent our children on the one hand they can be extremely helpful but they're not always correct are they oh i mean and this is the interesting thing with some of the studies is some of the studies are large reviews 
Some are complete randomised controlled trials, which means the people don't even know which condition they're in. Um, some of them are really small sample sizes and are quite quirky studies. Um, and so I don't think any one study is ever definitive, but I think taken as a collection, they can, as we say, they can give a good guideline. Um, so I'll give you one example that we always find is when we talk to students, um, is about sleep, for example. And we know the National Sleep Foundation would say for a teenager, let's say nine to nine and a half hours sleep. And yet we have had both had on countless experiences, students tell us, oh, but they're the one who only needs six hours sleep each night. And everyone thinks they're the one. And yet simple math tells you not everyone can be that 1% who only needs six hours. And so it's really interesting about how do we find that balance between, yes, everyone is unique, but not using that as a way to self-protect our self-handicapping behaviours. Um, and that's a really interesting balance. And I think only parents can answer that for their own child because they're the expert in their child. Yeah, and exactly, you're an expert in yourself. And I think, you know, trying to feel like we're doing the right thing most of the time is probably as, as good as it's going to get, rather than trying for someone else to tell you what, what... I mean, I know one of the studies you did was about eating breakfast and how important, or at least one of the studies you outlined in the book, how important for most children, you know, eating breakfast is. I'm not a breakfast eater. I'm someone who actually feels much better without breakfast and kind of eats kind of then more frequently during the day. And so I think, you know, as, a, as an individual, when you're looking at kind of data, you can always sort of override and go, well, for me, this seems to be working. But broadly speaking, you know, taking the kind of uh, the general um, ideas and uh, advice from these studies is, is but having the autonomy to say, yeah, I'm going to heed that, but actually this doesn't apply to me is probably sensible, isn't it? Um, yes. Well, yes and no, as in so it is... It's quite a big call to say that you yourself are the one that's um, <laughs> and different from what's going on. And also, I mean, there's some quite interesting studies around, like, if you ask a whole bunch of people whether above average or below average on any one thing, you quite often find that there are, like, 70% of people think they're above average, which is just not possible. So everybody thinks that they're different. I mean, I think one of the things that's quite uh, interesting, particularly on that sleep one, is that everybody knows that they should be getting um, nine hours or nine and a half hours sleep as a teenager, but they're all getting on average like six or seven hours because they all think that they're, they are the one that can do it on six or seven hours and I don't need those extra two or three hours sleep. And it's quite a bold call to say you're one of the people that is different from, from the average, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you why I think why it's a challenge to know if you're the outlier or not is we know there's a number of studies that people tend to do what they like and what they prefer as opposed to what's best for them. So you're probably bored of me saying this, Edward, but I always go back to it. It's like, my toddler, he likes to eat chocolate buttons for breakfast. That's what he likes. But I know that's not what's best for him. And I think when you give a child a choice of how would you like to revise, um, I'd like to do it in front of the TV. Um, how would you like to go to bed at night? I'd like to have my phone by my side. And that helps me calm down just like... And it's like, that's probably what's fun and what you like, but it might not be what's best for you. And that's a real challenge because I think parenting is one big game of short-term wins versus long-term wins. And how do you know when's a good enough time to take the short-term win and have an easier day? And when's the time to push through and override what they don't necessarily like, but it's for their long-term development? That's a really... There is no answer. It's just a judgment call. Um, but it's a really tricky challenge to have as a parent, I think. 
And also bearing in mind that all studies aren't equal, are they? No. You know, there are, we're often, especially in the media, presented with, you know, this study suggests this, and it often is kind of quite headline grabbing. And then you look down to the bones of the study and you think, actually, am I going to believe that? I was, I was listening to something on the radio that recently, and there was a study uh, out of Italy that basically said that every person in the world was do, using 18 face masks a day. And, you know, people were like, this was reported on the BBC, and they were saying, that seems a lot, considering children don't wear them, and people from, you know, less advantageous backgrounds don't necessarily have access to them. And when they looked into the bones of the study, they realised that essentially what they're doing, they've taken kind of a small cohort in Italy, in the middle of a pandemic of adults, and then extrapolated that to cover the whole population, mm-hmm. which obviously is not a great study. And certainly, um, so it's it, the, the bones of the study are quite important, aren't they? hundred percent. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on on a day-to-day basis, basis on in the media where people will take like little extracts of studies and uh, studies, like you say, that aren't, aren't as um, well uh, done as perhaps they should be. And, they, and, and then it becomes the truth, whereas... I'd like to think that in the 77 studies that we've picked, that all of them are pretty um, solid mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 in the way that they've been done. Um, but actually, the interesting thing actually is something that we were talking about yesterday is that a lot of the studies have been around for quite a long time. One of them in the study, one of the studies has been around for about 150 years and is still reproducible. So it's a, you're right, there's, there's a lot of research going on out there um, and studies come up with different answers and even some of the major studies eventually get that get built on or changed or the, the, the um, conclusions are, are derived from them change as well. Um, I, I'd like to think that we've got 77 pretty solid ones there that that at least give you something to think about in the way that one uh, people learn, how, how our children learn and perhaps how we should help them learn. Yeah, and I think, uh, so you talked about not all studies being equal. I think it's interesting to talk about the reporting of all studies isn't often equal. So, for example, just this week, there was quite a big survey done by employers, and it was reported in quite a lot of um, the press that one in seven employers don't care about grades when looking to recruit. And that was used as some who want a very broad curriculum to go, one in seven don't care about grades, are we putting too much emphasis on grades? And yet, of course, you can take the exact same study and go, well, that obviously then means... Six out of seven, so like 85% of employers do care about grades, so it's really important. And they've used the same study and the same data. And that's one thing I think we tried our best to avoid is we tried to just report what the studies found um, and give some related research, but just kind of leave it open to interpretation. So this isn't a how to parent manual, it's very much these might help inform your decisions, but obviously your context is different to mine, and so therefore some of the research might be more relevant or less relevant, depending on that. Mm, absolutely. Well, I loved actually, you know, the the, the references to the, the studies that have been around for ages, because obviously there was, I think it was the termite study, which measured yeah. children's uh, IQ. But then, of course, because this was done in, I think, the 50s, maybe, yeah. they it was a longitudinal study. But so they basically looked at where those children were in 10 years and then 10 years and then 10 years. And of course, that gives such an interesting perspective on, you know, how IQ uh, impacted or not necessarily but 
whether there was any correlation between sort of their long-term job goals and kind of life satisfaction, job satisfaction. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and just to give some context on that, in case anyone's not familiar, it wasn't a study on termites. No, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so the termite study was named after uh, Lewis Terman, uh, and he was the researcher and uh, his group of cohorts. They were affectionately known as the termites. Uh, and it was basically a really interesting study to see how much impact does IQ have, which I think gets to the heart of a lot of parenting is nature versus nurture and how much impact can we have on our children based on the decisions we made because for a long time I think IQ was seen as fate and destiny. Well uh, still children are they're like kind of like identified and categorized according to these CAT scores which is essentially a sort of modern IQ test. Right and e even if you look at a lot of schools in England at the moment often many of them have what they call a gifted and talented group and immediately that implies that your gifts and your talents are what's going to help you be successful not what you do with them. And yet actually what he found was, yes, IQ does matter. Like it's never nature or nurture. It's always a combination of the both. We can't deny things like IQ have a huge predictive uh, impact on a whole range of measures. But he also found things like resilience and willpower and motivation. That was a huge factor as well. Uh, and why it's nice, that's like, as you say, it's longitudinal. So we can track it for years and years and years and years. Um, and so that definitely adds, I think, some weight to it. Yeah. And again, you know, that fits into the category of the, oh, yeah, of course, that makes complete sense. Mm. You know, he basically said IQ matters, but actually there was a cohort of children that didn't do that well and didn't have that, you know, great job satisfaction in spite of their high IQ. And it turned out that the children that did have all of those, they combined their high IQ with, you know, resilience, a kind of uh, ability to adapt to change and a growth mindset. And so it was that kind of combination of all those factors rather than the IQ on its own that would give the predictive factor into um... yeah, and, there's, and then there's, there's another great study and then the marshmallow uh, experiment which is again another longitudinal study where they were which trying most to... people <coughs> will be familiar with yeah <coughs> so the idea that actually being able to delay gratification is is correlated to supposed life success uh, and then when they looked at it a lot later they they found that actually um it depends on whether you trust the person who's giving you the task. So it depends on whether you think the person who has promised you a marshmallow will actually deliver uh, on that marshmallow. And so there's, there's other factors that you discover through as um, as these studies go through through time. And and, and you know it's it, it, what they the researchers were suggesting actually if you don't trust the person who's giving you the deal, then clearly your best strategy is to eat the marshmallow as quickly as you can before it's taken away from you. Well, and also they were talking about how, you know, it was linked potentially to a socioeconomic background. Yeah. And actually, if you're desperately hungry, you're kind of going to be pragmatic and just eat that marshmallow yeah. <laughs> as well as the sort of trusting thing. But um, yeah. I thought that was a really interesting perspective on something that was like, of course, the study says this. And yeah. then someone rethinks it and goes, but it could mean this too. Totally. And like the scarce resources thing is interesting. So not only did like, if you think on the big scale of uh, socioeconomic background, so if uh, resources are limited, it makes sense to take what you can when you can uh, but on a basic level it's so like my wife she's a twin and so her twin's like a, a big lad and she was always say if she didn't eat really quickly like she knew he would take like the only seconds that was left uh because it was a limited resource and so therefore this whole delayed gratification and wait doesn't make much sense uh so yeah uh, the headline that everyone knows is delayed gratification marshmallow experiments really good for life outcomes the really interesting part for me as a parent is then, so what can I then do to enable my child to delay that gratification? And how do I equip them to do that with the skills and self-regulation? 
Um, and that's why I quite like these studies is like they're a gateway into these kind of conversations as opposed to just a definitive answer by themselves. So you're both parents. You, uh, Bradley, you've got a toddler. Yeah. Edward, your children are slightly older. They're teens, early 20s. Yeah, is that right? University, yeah. So um, looking at all these studies, this examination of studies, did it change your perspective on sort of how you parent? And I suppose, Edward, is, was there anything that you sort of wish you'd done <laughs> differently or wish you'd known when your children were sort of slightly younger? Yeah, I, um, I have to say that when we wrote this book, I wish we'd written it about 10, 15 years earlier. Because <laughs> um, there was a lot that, that I could definitely have done better, particularly along uh, some of the, the praise aspects of growth mindset and helping with dealing with failure and, fee- and, and feedback and stuff like that and risk-taking. Um, I think, though, one of the things that was quite interesting to me was particularly when we got onto things like the, the, the issues around sleep and, and sleep deprivation and the degradation in concentration and in, in performance um, that that results in. Um, I think my overwhelming feeling was I knew I was right all along <laughs> and I wish I'd been a bit firmer about it. Because, you know, the pressures are there, you know, mobile phones sort of ambushed our generation and we felt, you know, our children did to us what we used to do with the, with PlayStation, for instance. My household wasn't allowed PlayStations because it was bad for your education. And so um, we just said, well, everyone else has got one. You're just being mean to us here. And that's kind of what happened to us with mobile telephones. And yet we all knew deep down that it was not good for concentration and it's helping with sleep deprivation, all of those things which are bad for, for learning. Um, and perhaps I would probably have been a bit stronger on that. I'd have been a bit... I think a greatest gift now that having having written this book and read some of the stuff is I think one of the greatest gifts you can give your child is is the discipline to go to sleep well, uh, and actually, for the that's right what, amount of time. Yeah, that's what I loved about the book because, you know, there's the section which is, you know... Uh, what the study is, how it was conducted, what it said, um, but then also what parents can take from it. And of course, so often parents are like, oh God, my children's, a child isn't sleeping or it's so difficult to get them to go to bed. And the take back from that was maybe we need to persuade our children how beneficial sleep is. Maybe that is a yeah. big part of their education. Yes, we spend loads of time getting them to understand the kind of structure of a sentence and what a frontal adverbial is. But at the same time, maybe we need to do a little bit more education on this is why sleep is sacred. This is why you need to prioritize sleep over learning the times tables, dare I say, or homework, because actually, unless you do sleep, you're ill-equipped to learn. So arguably, your time is better spent sleeping than doing homework, which isn't going to be beneficial if you're tired anyway. I mean, you did it to me. I I said that I was having a Coca-Cola and you you tipped me off something wrong about (laughs) how clearly I hadn't read the research studies on on how bad that amount of sugar into the body is. And yeah, of course. And and you're doing it presumably with your kids. So I couldn't see any Coca-Cola around here. The, um, and that's kind of natural. And you're teaching them that sugar and that um, processed sugar is a bad thing to have, and it and the effects that it has. Well, but sleep deprivation is out there, and it's 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 a lot worse than I ever thought it could be. In that I see uh, reasonably often groups of students at school, and they they are averaging between six and seven hours. They need nine and a half. It's just that's the science. You can't get around the fact that that's what the body needs. And how do we persuade these 
children with all the, with these devices and so much excitement going on and and you know um and they don't want to miss out on what their their friends are doing they want to be part of the scene and all that sort of how do we persuade them that actually a really good idea is to like you say make sleek sacred and and get it so that you can learn better so that you can well, I, I like football play football better um that you can all those things that that, that you want to do better you can do better if you have a better night's sleep well, it's almost like a sort of personal hygiene thing it should be yeah. you know we teach our children the importance of washing and brushing your teeth yeah. and actually sleep should be a form of that should because be on it's the list, so yeah. so crucial how about you bradley you've got uh, a much younger <laughs> son uh, now yeah. you know about sleep so uh, <laughs> uh so i guess uh for my with my son uh the area that i found most interesting is probably uh around praise uh and there's different types of praise and just, I guess, to give context, in about the late 80s, there was this big self-esteem movement within psychology of we should praise loudly and never miss an opportunity to praise. Um. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. And yeah, that didn't often lead to the results that people were hoping for. Um, they now kind of see praises like penicillin. You should use it sparingly and selectively is probably a better way than uh, sparingly. And there's different types of praise. And yet when you listen out for how people praise their young children, it's fascinating how we often do it suboptimally, I think. So you can praise the person. So you're so smart. You're such a clever girl. Uh, if you record how many times family members praise young children for their ability on who they are, like you're smart and you're clever, it's the go-to praise. And yet one of the studies in the book found that students who are praised a lot for their ability, uh, like their intelligence, uh, not only do they then fear losing that reputation, uh, and so that can lead to all sorts of self-handicapping behaviours of, I withdraw from the task so that way I don't fail, but by default, we do fail by doing that. But therefore, I can't lose that smart reputation. Um, it also is linked to stuff like perfectionism and feel failure. Um, we see a lot of person praise around, you got the most, you scored the most goals today. Um, you got, came top of your class for your spelling. But that's always relative to someone else, which short term might be an okay motivator, but long term is quite a poor basis for motivation. And yet a lot of the research was saying that the most underused praise, which is probably the most powerful, is around the process. So you talk about the behaviours that they did. So when my child um, does well at school, when he figures out how to put his shoes on, the right feet, um, when he does pretty much anything, it's really tempting to go, you put your shoes on, oh, you're so smart. 
Whereas actually, if you kind of go, you must have thought really hard about which shoe goes on which foot. By focusing on the behavior, you provide this sort of template and model for them to follow and replicate next time. Uh, and that's, I think, what we talk about with praise is it should be, it should be purposeful. So it should focus on the behaviors you value. And I don't really value him just being right in terms of what shoes he gets on. I value that he's thought about it and he's learned and he's developing. Um, and that's why focus on this process is important. And interestingly enough, the research suggests there is a really interesting difference between... So I've got a little boy, but we've got... Uh, my niece is about the same age. Uh, subconsciously, parents praise their boys differently to how they praise their, uh, their daughters. Um, and even one of the studies that... It wasn't actually one of the main studies. I think it was in the related research on one of them. I love the concept where... They got parents to estimate how, how steep an incline can your toddler crawl up. Um, parents of boys overestimated and parents of girls underestimated. And we know parents praise boys' process a lot more than they praise the process of the girl. Because what does it mean to be in society to be a, a good girl? Typically, that's meant to be smart, presentable, to be correct, to be right. And yet, actually, I, you need that risk-taking, that it's okay to fail, that trial and error. Um, and as a parent, I was just amazed at how much I saw everyone else praise his outcome. And yet, even me knowing about this stuff, it's still my default. It's like the go-to compliment. Uh, whereas actually, by focusing on the behaviour, that's, I think, going to help his learning much more. So that's probably the one that I've taken the most from yeah, it. And that makes such sense because it's the tenacity that we really want in right. our child. You know, I'd much rather that my child couldn't shy his shoelaces, but was really going to try and, and you know, showed the tenacity of, of that repeated try and try again yeah. and don't be defeated by failure than the child that finds it really easy to tie their shoelaces. You right. know, that those those qualities are much more uh, attractive for right. me. And, and, and because if you have those qualities, I can teach you. Like I can scaffold my support accordingly. I can show you different techniques. But if you have the motivation and the adaptability and the growth mindset to want to learn, that's gold dust. Like that, that's, I think that's all we all want as parents is our kids just to enjoy what they're doing and, and try their hardest to do it as well as they can. Well, and it's also, it's interesting, it's, it's interesting that actually most of the time we think our children aren't listening to us at all and they're just doing uh, their own stuff. But actually... They're listening to every single word you say and subconsciously they're making decisions based on what you have said and they, 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 they want to please you. So an interesting experiment that, that I tend to do when I go and do parent talks is the idea that, uh, so if you imagine that your child's coming back from a sporting event and walks through the front door, um, just think honestly, what is the first question that you ask them? And most people, if they're honest, will ask the question, did you win? And by that one sentence, you're saying, that is the most important thing to me, and that's what I want you to please me on, is winning. Whereas, actually, there's some more important questions to ask than that, like, did you have a good time? Did you meet some good friends? Did you do what you... Have right. fun, have fun, exactly. And then, of course, somewhere down the line, you need to ask the question, which is, did you win? But by putting it first, you're saying that's more important than that you had fun or learned something or um you know met some good friends or what, what, had, had fun and of course paradoxically the less you talk about winning and the more you talk about the behaviors actually the more likely they are you are to win yeah. to win because it's the process of how to win uh but yeah that immediate focus on it actually it's quite counterintuitive by focusing on winning you're actually less likely to do so and yet this world is kind of modelled on that. I mean, just look at the football this summer. And <laughs> when England lost and everyone was just so upset and no one was like, but did we have a fun time in the 
was it Euros? I think it was. Did we have a fun time watching? You know, everyone felt like it was just such a sad thing that that they won. And so that's quite difficult because the world culture, the popular culture of the world is not saying that. And yet our voices are very powerful, aren't they? You know, sort of on the one hand, we might have parents listening to us thinking... I mean, listen, if I don't praise them in the right way, how important is that? I'm paying for a great education and they've got great other opportunities. But yet, it, what I believe is that voice is incre- it's one of the loudest voices of our children. So the little tweaks that we can make in terms of our behaviour, like thinking about how we praise them, actually have a significant effect on their attitudes. Oh. Well, like it or not, even if you, if you like to subcontract out your education to your child's education to someone else, you are still their primary teacher because he's the kids spend more time with you than they do with anybody else. And, you know, the world is by no means perfect and there's a ton of stuff out there that's going on, particularly at the moment, that is not brilliant for our children's education. And part of being a parent is being a leader that's prepared to say, no, that's that's not unrealistic or that's an unrealistic expectation or what's being done here is wrong and that we should do it in a different way mm. one of my I, one of the studies i really liked was the one on thought suppression mm-hmm. so talking about um what children remember so if you say um don't don't think about white bears <laughs> all children yeah. could think about was white bears yeah and so if you say to your child you know um when you're doing your speech don't fidget they will just be thinking about fidgeting and, oh, no, mustn't fidget, but then they can't get... And actually, if you want your child to do something, talk about what they should be doing rather than what they shouldn't be doing. So, you know, keep your hands still, focus on keeping your hands still. And again, I, I totally recognise that. If someone says, don't think about the colour red, all I can see is the colour red. Um, and yet that's a real interesting window into their psyche and being able to communicate with them effectively. So, like, although I wrote the book with Edward... When it comes to parenting, I mainly copy what my wife does because uh, she's just like an awesome parent. And one thing, so she's, she's big on that as well. And so, for example, because um, my kid's three, we're definitely in a bit of a shouty uh, phase, him, not us, uh, in quite a shouty uh, phase at times. And it's my go-to still is like, don't shout, uh, where she always says, like, use your calm voice and then I can understand you. And the transformation is awesome. Uh, and, yeah, if you keep going with, like, don't shout um, or don't hit, you know, instead of probably, like, calm hands, it's probably better. Uh, it actually makes him less frustrated because he then knows how, how he can get his point across. And it makes me less frustrated because I'm not involved in this, like, high-intensity, for want of a better word, battle, uh, it feels like at the time. Um, and yet something simple as that, and going back to what you were saying, Edward, earlier about common sense, is once you say that, you kind of go oh yeah, that makes sense, I should be doing that all along. But until someone points it out, I would probably still be saying don't shout because that's not a behaviour that I value. But actually I need to teach them what the, the behaviour I do value is, which is talk respectfully and talk calmly and talk nicely. Uh, and they can do it. And I think a lot of this stuff is, it only works if you have these high expectations. So it's really easy to assume that they can't do stuff. Uh, whereas actually when you get the right type of instruction, sometimes they blow your mind with, they surprise you with what they're capable of. Um, and also it's again it comes back to this whole common sense thing we see it in our own lives as you've already pointed out so I'm a very keen golfer and if I say to myself and I'm just about to chip the ball onto the green and there's a bunker in front all I can think about is whatever you do you mustn't hit it into the bunker guess where it goes straight in the bunker because you're basically saying to your brain I want to hit this ball in the bunker rather than actually what you should be saying is I need to hit the ball 
to the left of the flag or just behind the flag or whatever it is and then you can then you can train your brain or instruct your your body to actually uh, do that function rather than hitting it into the bunker yeah and we've all had it like the last thing my parents used to say to me when i used to go out when i was a teenager the very last sentence as i was leaving the house was don't be late home and literally my last thought when leaving the house was I wonder how late I can be home today and I still get away with it. Like, but that was the thought that was in my mind. Um, so, yeah, it's, it happens all the time. What was the most surprising study that you came across? Or were the, what was the, mo- the study with the most surprising conclusion that you came across? I'm going to nick this one off Bradley, probably the music one, actually. So um, it, it turns out, <laughs> I used to, so I used to think, uh, when, particularly when I was studying, that the... It was music was really important to me, and it, well, it, it was really important to me. And, and when I was doing differential equations, I thought if every time I do differential equations, I play um, some Pink Floyd. In this particular case, it was "We Don't Need No Education." Um, and if I play that to myself while I'm actually doing it in practice, when I get to the exam, all I need to do is hum that particular song, uh, and and I'll, I'll absolutely ace my differential equations. Turns out that was wrong, but it also turned out that. Uh, when researchers got to it, because you can measure performance and you can and you can have background music of different types, that just the mere fact of having some music on in the background um, degrades your performance. And then it depends what type of music it is. So if it's got lyrics with it, it's even worse. If it's lyrics that you don't really like, it's even worse than that. And the the numbers are actually are actually quite high in terms of degradation. But and that a was surprising. But b it's again it's one of those things that. A lot of, if you tell that to people, people will go, well, I need it because it makes me feel calmer or it makes me feel more relaxed. And, and those things are, are true, but it's very difficult to argue with the research when it's an easy thing to, to measure performance when you're doing all of this sort of stuff. And the numbers kind of stack up against you, which is, was a bit surprising for me. Yeah, and you know this is true. So obviously music can help like motivation so on the treadmill at the gym and I hate the treadmill at the gym music can help block out the pain so like it has its place but you know it when you need to think hard about stuff like if you've been driving and you've got your kid in the car and you know where you're going you can have the radio on you can have a conversation with your child the second you're lost what's the first thing that everyone does they turn off the radio they tell the kid just to be quiet for just two seconds because I need to think and so we know when you need to think hard music Uh, yeah it competes for attention yeah that makes absolute sense although I do remember when I was studying for my (laughs) A-levels thinking that I would somehow be kind of a genius if I put some Mozart on (laughs) yeah yeah. there was a whole bunch of studies on that called the Mozart effect and you asked earlier about quality of studies so the Mozart effect it came out I think it I can't remember when it came out but there was a big craze to get the kids listen to classical music and of course years later it's never been replicated and it's seen as a bit of a it was a fad bit of bumpkin Uh, but yeah at the time people rush to that research uh, well and also people are always after a quick fix yes. you know wouldn't it be great to be able to make your child to have a higher IQ if you just play Mozart to them while they're in the uterus or if you're studying for your oh, yeah. you yeah. know history yeah. A-level just put That's on a bit of did. opera and suddenly <laughs> you bump up a grade but the world is full of that I see it the whole time you know the kind of quick fix of I was talking about sort of caesareans today while teaching antenatal classes and people are always like oh I've heard of this amazing cream that will fix my caesarean scar I'm like they just don't work magic doesn't exist and yet um because we're always prepared to buy it of course yeah. it exists in the marketplace it's just but that doesn't mean it actually works i was like things are for sale because people will buy them not because they work mm-hmm. completely um 
Uh, and in terms of, um, were there any other, uh, were there any studies that you discarded because you just didn't feel they were good enough or that, I mean, listen, the most famous study that was just a useless study was the the MMR vaccine with Andrew Wakefield, where it was published, I think, in one of the big medical journals. And then they actually looked at the sort of bones of the study and they realized that it was total rubbish um were there any studies that were sort of popular that you looked at and you just thought actually this this doesn't you know this isn't worthy of our book yeah i mean so for a start all the research and this is by no means the only factor but so all the studies are like from peer-reviewed established journals which i think is a good starting point just explain what peer-reviewed is so peer-reviewed uh in the most layman's terms is it's not enough for me just to have an opinion on it and then it gets published. Um, it gets assessed by someone independent of the study who like monitors the data, who grills the researcher um, and is essentially in psychology seen as a, a quality control. Um, but that being said, there's still some bad studies that are making that. But that's usually like a first level. Um, I guess there are hundreds of studies I'd have loved to include. Uh, and one of the things that we wanted for this book was... It wasn't enough for the studies just to be interesting. Uh, they had to be useful. So it had to lead to like something. It could generate an idea that come next Thursday when my child comes home from like nursery or primary school, I, I know I can do something different as a result of this study. Um, so we didn't want it just to be interesting. We wanted it to be useful. And so we wanted ones that naturally either address real-world problems. So we know lots of students revise to music uh, or phones or sleep. And then we also want something that could actually lead to hopefully some sort of uh, parental behaviour change. Uh, so that was the big, those are the two main factors. Um, if Edward would have let me have my way, mm. I'd have had 177 studies, not 77. But No, we had to pare them down. Yeah. I don't know in this book whether we put the stuff in about learning styles. So yeah, learning styles is in there. Yeah, so, we, so the learning styles stuff, um, we believe, is, was a bit of a fad. And what, what do you mean by learning styles? Oh, yeah, no, go for it. Uh, okay, so it got really popular that um, about 10 years ago in education, lots of students were given a questionnaire and they were sold, you're either a visual learner, an auditory learner, or a kinesthetic, basically movement, uh, learner. And therefore you should teach and they should revise according to their style. So the visual learners always need to see stuff and the kinesthetic learners need to always be moving and be active. Um, and yet there's been not one study that found learning in that way that you prefer actually is better. Um, and that was a big shot to people because, of course, we're all individual and we are all unique. But as we kind of said at the start, we're more similar than we are different. And it's more about the content that you're trying to teach. So if I'm trying to learn about music, I have to hear it at some stage because it's music. And if you're looking at maps and geography, you have to see it. Um, and so it's more about matching the content to how it's delivered, how it's taught, as opposed to, I only want to learn in this way. And therefore, the problem with that is we saw a lot of students boxing themselves off. They go, I can't do this because I'm a kinesthetic learner. So what started from a good place around individual uniqueness actually became quite limiting. Sorry, I completely jumped in on that. No, 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 uh, absolutely. No, it's much better that you do the technical stuff. <laughs> um, I did most of the pictures, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> um, and Bradley, what's your, what's your favourite study from the book? Uh, my favourite study, um, I like the ones about memory and learning. Uh, I find them really interesting because, so I used to teach um, at college and I was amazed at how quickly students forgot things. 
and I take it really personally of like, I taught you this last week, have you already forgotten it? And I see it with my child of like, we've been over this. How many times do I need to keep repeating myself? And why do people forget stuff and at different rates compared to how they're taught and learn it? Um, and so one of my favorite studies found that the most popular ways that people tend to learn, uh, simply rereading their notes over and over to ingrain it in their mind and highlighting. Um, are really ineffective strategies. And I pull my hair out every time I see the back to school campaigns that you see in the supermarkets and it's always pushing highlighters um, because they don't help people learn. And yeah, but they make a profit for the supermarkets. But, oh, 100%. <laughs> uh, and yet a lot of the stuff that's really effective, uh, quite traditional styles of generating an answer to a question. Um, so for example, on a very basic level, outside of parenting, if you want to remember lots of people's names, just reading their names doesn't really help. But if you quiz yourself, uh, after half an hour of that sort of quizzing of what was his name and then you look up the answer kind of like a flashcard you tend to remember it and actually what they found my favourite studies showed that stuff like quizzing and even if it's just like verbal Q&A that you can do as a parent of what did you learn today why did, that, why did this happen why was it true for X but not for Y just these kind of conversations around learning um, they don't actually assess learning they actually help you accelerate it it's a key driver for learning. And I found that really fascinating because A, as a teacher, it meant I didn't have to take it personally because um, it's just how people, people forget stuff. And so I need to... Yeah, and as a parent, I get very offended that my children right. don't remember anything I tell them. But like, it's not, it's not, that's almost, uh, it's not say you're devoid of any responsibility of that, but it's just how the brain works as, as, as a learner. Um, but if we actually know uh, how people learn, it can be really empowering as a parent because... I might not know enough about physics when the time comes to really be able to teach my son about physics. But if I know how to learn, I can create an environment that can help facilitate his learning of physics. And that's quite powerful because it means it's not overwhelming, I think, as a parent. I love the bit about um, generating questions from your learning. And of course, that makes total sense. You know, the idea is that children, you tell them a fact and then you ask them to generate a question about that fact. And that's much more likely to ingrain that information in their brain. So, you know, I was doing capital cities with my children, actually not even capital cities, like um, just European cities and... You know, I was, I was talking about Austrian cities and Salzburg. Well, why would it have been called Salzburg Salt Fortress? Oh, because they got the salt from there. So now they're never going to forget that name because they we've had a kind of wider and slightly more interesting conversation about why it's called Salzburg rather than just this is the name of the city. And so that idea that if you can sort of generate questions and make it sort of relevant and interesting, they're much more likely to hold on to that information rather than just, you know, repeating it back like AI does. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why questions are really good is uh, it avoids it being like a shallow learning process, like it deeply and fundamentally, it connects this new information that you're giving them about Salzburg, but it connects it into what's known as like their schema, the stuff they already know. Uh, and by making that connection, it ingrains it and it makes that learning sticky. And therefore, as you say, they're probably never likely to forget it uh, as opposed to just being an isolated and quite random Fact. And, and, and dare I say irrelevant, because a lot of people, why, why do I need to learn these, these capital cities? I can just look it up on the internet. Uh, I mean, yeah, and that's really interesting. So there is something called the Google effect. We hear that argument all the time, uh, whereas the Google effect founds that the stuff you look up on Google, you're much more likely to forget it because you've never had to think hard about it. Whereas you're getting your kids to think hard and make that connection. Uh, and I think with so much fake news out there now, if we delegate memory to the internet... 
it's basically Russian roulette is what you're playing because it might work and it might be okay. But if you don't know how to use the internet, it's really easy for fake for, for fake news to become seen as truth and fact. Mm. Again, there's some <clears throat> there's some interesting stuff here um, around some of the discussions we had earlier about whether people know what's good for them or not. So if you look at things like uh, what we call retrieval practice, which is basically quizzing and, 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 and the power of doing that compared to reading your notes and rereading your notes. The, the thing about reading and rereading your notes is it's really easy to monitor. So I used to give my kids in particular, you say, right, let's read a chapter and learn it. And so they'd read the chapter or they'd highlight it and then they'd be like, but I've done it all. Look, I've highlighted it all. It all and, and, and then everyone's happy. Whereas... As I said before, it's really easy to research. You do, you take half of a, of a bunch of people and you get them to do lots of reading of notes and you take half of them and you get them to do mostly quizzing. And there's a significant difference in performance in terms of memorising and, and being able to answer questions on it. And yet when you ask this, the students or the kids which one they think is going to work the best, they'll, they'll always go for the, um, the reading and rereading because it's physical. You know you've done it and you've got to the end of the chapter and you've done it, but you haven't engaged with the content. So it doesn't stick in the brain as well. And actually, in actual fact, the better way of doing it is the reverse of what people think it should be. Yeah. It has been a real pleasure reading the book. Honestly, I've absolutely loved I love these sort of bite-sized bits. It feels like it's really sort of opened my eyes into the, the psyche of the book. Thank you both so much for coming along and talking to me today. Um, the Parent's Guide to the Science of Learning, 77 Studies That Every Parent Needs to Know by Edward Watson and Bradley Bush are, is out now, available from all good bookshops. I wholeheartedly recommend it. Um, and thank you all for downloading this episode of The Parenthood. You can subscribe, rate and review wherever you find on this podcast but in the meantime from Edward Bradley and me thanks for listening and goodbye thank you very much thank you planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with Quince Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen premium luggage options buttery soft Italian leather bags and so much more and it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.